you had to end on the one tip that I'm most jealous of from for Avid users versus Premiere, because there's no transition button in Premiere. No. Welcome to The Cutdown, a podcast all about the art of trailer editing. This is episode number 22. I'm Derek Liu. And I'm Rick Thomas. And this week on the podcast, we thought that we would talk about sort of our top 10 like trailer hack tips, just little things that we've learned over the years from editing trailers, whether it's a trick from someone else or something we just figured out on our own just because we have all these little tasks that we perform all the time and figured out a faster way in some cases. And for me, at least, I know a lot of these things are uh, techniques that I've just never seen tutorials for when, like, looking at Premiere tutorials or something like that. Yeah, and these are all kind of, they may be specific to uh, trailers, but they could also probably carry on to to other things as well. and uh, yeah, a, a lot of mine kind of get into the weeds of, uh, of trailer editing, but... Um... It's going to get really nerdy. So if you're not a video editor, you might just tune out after our discussion that we're going to have before we share the tips. But maybe you'll find it interesting. Um, I always like kind of seeing behind the scenes of things. Like I like watching how it's made. <laughs> this is how it's made. <laughs> true. And speaking of niche things that are uh, in the trader business, a, uh, an Instagram account has taken the trader business by storm. Uh, it's called Red Band Green Band. And it is trailer specific memes yes (laughs) um and it is very very inside baseball or inside traders but um it's hilarious you know there are there are memes about um covering bad music edits with whooshes naming swish peptides is a thing that everyone like reaches for to do um a lot of stuff about losing trailers which as we've said before you know only like 90 percent of what we do doesn't get made and someone else gets finished so so that um that's close to the bone but uh, a common thing for most trader editors i think um you know there, there was something the other day about hearing the cue you're using in another bay uh, which isn't an issue that you run into but it's definitely something as you're kind of walking around a trader house you're like where did they get that that's my that's my cue so yeah everyone's um everyone's kind of obsessed with it in the in the trader business now the one that really connected to me was there was one about how all my linkedin requests are from trailer music composers (laughs) 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 which you know i like i understand like it's a really really tough gig to have to to be a trailer music uh creator composer and you just have to make connections somehow but (laughs) it is absolutely true uh, that I'd say at least half of my LinkedIn requests are from trailer music composers or people who run trailer music libraries. You know, maybe more than half even. Yeah, that's hilarious. I always kind of go uh, go for it because I'm like, well, great. You never know when that great queue is going to come along and um, the more the merrier. Although don't now flood me with LinkedIn <laughs> requests. <laughs> yeah, I just, I wouldn't know how to approach it. Like if, if I even had all those requests or connections, who would I go to? So I, I have no idea. Thankfully, I haven't excellent music department now to uh, <laughs> to uh, to help me with that so um cool so um before we dive into our kind of um top tips we wanted to talk about um a recent trailer um which was the second trailer for the invisible man i'm scared you don't have to be scared of him anymore he was a sociopath completely in control of everything he said that wherever i went he would find me walk right up to me and I wouldn't be able to see him 
And uh, Derek, you wanted to kind of dive into this one. And so what was it that kind of piqued your your interest for, for us to talk about? Yeah, for this one, I don't really have any investment in the movie itself. But when the first trailer came out, it was just one of those movies or one of those trailers which just feels like it just keeps on going and going and going. And it's showing more. And even if these trailers are the same length, the first one just feels like one of those trailers where you just expect the people around you in the theater to say, well, don't need to see that movie. And when the second trailer came out, I was just really curious what they were going to do for the second one, because after showing so much, what would they possibly do? I really liked the second trailer a lot better than the first one. So I really wanted to dig in and figure out why, even though it had a lot of the same material, the second one felt better to me. So for this podcast, I just kind of went through and charted everything. Um, what did you think about these trailers? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I uh, It's funny because we were talking about the uh, Invisible Man Super Bowl um, spot. And actually, I think that was a pregame spot. So um, so maybe it isn't kind of judged with the other, um, you know, isn't quite uh, isn't quite as eventy as the other as the other spots we were talking about. Um, but in terms of these trailers, they do have a very similar story structure. Um, but actually, if you look at it, so the kind of, the kind of structure of it is she escapes from abusive husband or, or or partner, abusive partner is revealed to be dead, but actually no, he's invisible and he's haunting her. Um, and she gets out of the house and to kind of safety in about thirty seconds in the first trailer. Um, and I think that the biggest difference that I kind of noticed was that plays out a lot less cutty in the in the second one yeah the the thing that i would really say is the key difference between the first and second trailer is that the second trailer definitely has a handful of scenes that are allowed to play out or at least it feels like they are you know for all i know for the the trailer is still making them shorter but things like that scene where she's escaping from her house uh just go through a lot more sort of small things along the way to her escaping and then he like smashes the, the car window of the car that she's in but in the second trailer there are things like you know she's picking things up and um she has a little scene with the their dog and she's saying oh, i'm not gonna leave you behind and the dog accidentally uh bumps into the car apparently hard enough to activate the alarm but it sort of actually creates this suspenseful scene in there Um, I don't know exactly how long it is compared to the first one, but it's definitely um, more uh, just fleshed out rather than, okay, let's do this quick cold open, get to the logos, and then get into the, the whole premise. Yeah, two things about that. The, the dog thing's really great because that actually lets you do the car alarm as the kind of sound design up to the point where he smashes the window in the car, which works really nicely. Um, and... I think actually something about the first trailer was that it gridded the attorney speech through it. I mean, I think in this one, Elizabeth Moss has a kind of voiceover kind of describing stuff as well. But I think because you had the attorney and he was kind of speaking in legalese in the first one, you're intentionally, I think, 
paying a bit less attention to what's happening and it's kind of scooting through with these kind of jump cuts and it's definitely a different uh, a different move to play it out in the second trailer as the attorney representing adrian's trust i'm required to read a prepared statement cecilia although our relationship was far from perfect i thought that you would talk to me rather than run away are you okay what happened to him he cut his wrists per his final wishes you're getting five million dollars contingent of course on the fine print it can't be ruled to be mentally incompetent yeah and you used a term you said gridded out which i've actually never heard but i think i understood what you meant but can you explain what you mean by gridded oh here you go here's a top tip (laughs) um a grid is a kind of yeah so you'll talk about um grids in kind of tv spots and trailers a grid is a dialogue concept run speech that you're using to grid your trailer around little kind of you know you're um you're using it as i think it applies more to tv spots as a tv spot you'll have like one speech as a character if you look at the black widow super bowl spot you know that's one speech from her that is gridding the entire spot um, it's not lots of different lines from lots of different people. It's kind of one concept that's taking you through. And similar to the to trailer one for this, that's what the attorney speech is doing in that first section. There's a bit of his speech, then a bit of kind of stuff of her leaving the house, and then a bit more of his speech. And then ultimately, I think after logos, it goes back to kind of reveals the attorney um, when he says the, the guy's dead. Yeah, it's kind of going back and forth between the two different storylines in that first trailer between her escaping and the, the attorney talking about it. And that is that's a big difference is that the second trailer is really just in the moment with her in that scene rather than using this additional voiceover um the other thing i noticed just when i sort of charted out the whole uh, the story beats of each trailer is that the first trailer um when i uh figured out the the story beats there are just a lot more of them in the first one so for example you know the attorney is reading whatever uh, the husband's will is and then you know she escapes then she's scared, then people think she's crazy, she realizes he's alive, then he's threatening her, then the attorney's just sort of talking about you know, her ex-husband, and then there's just a lot of moments when people are saying, like, you know, you're crazy, and she's like, I'm not crazy, and then people's like, you're crazy, and a lot of that stuff where people are questioning her, like, mental faculties is just not in the second trailer it's just a lot more stripped down in favor of just using these scenes just to just explore a little bit of the premise of, you know, these encounters of where uh, her husband's invisible and sort of threatening her. Oh, that's interesting. So you're saying that potentially the conflict in the first trailer comes from people not believing her. And then maybe in the second trailer, it's just kind of her versus him as the conflict a bit more. Yeah. And also because the first trailer brings up the point in the will is that she only gets her inheritance from him if she's deemed uh, mentally able or something like that. So I I understand that's why they're focusing on those scenes to show, okay, you know, this is the, the, the twisting the screws sort of part of the story that is making it uh, sort of extra painful for her, this, this, this experience. Um, But yeah, the, the, the second trailer, you know, there's the scene in the opening there's a scene where she's trying to get her blanket and clearly the husband is like invisible and standing on top of it. And then there's like a scene where 
her husband is sitting in a chair, even though she's right there and her friends are there. And that is, and then there's this whole scene in the attic, which wasn't in the first trailer, where she's finding a cell phone that's on vibrate, and then they have this. It's really, really slow and drawn out. Like it gets really quiet at some point, and then they have the like reveal where she throws paint on him, even though he's visible. So then he he becomes visible, and that's like this big moment. Um, yeah, those uh, those moments really connect. I I really kind of. Um... I really remember them. Like something like the bed is in the first trailer, specifically the sheets getting kind of taken off her. But it's a it's a kind of montage moment in that first trailer because there's so much going on. Whereas they kind of stop down and and play it out in this one. And the attic, yeah, definitely takes a lot of time. But I really kind of followed it and was there with her. So so worked really successfully in this one. I feel also she feels like a bit more of a victim in the second trailer because there's definitely and it might be tied into the crazy stuff you're talking about but in the end of the in the end of the first one she's kind of screaming you know where are you show yourself there you are and kind of lashes out at him and there's a similar moment in trailer two but it's um i think the line is uh you can't help me and then and then you have the there you are so it's a bit less kind of not that she's less active but um a bit less kind of taking her revenge as well yeah there's the one line where she says something like gotcha and there's clearly a confrontation and that line happens pretty much the very end of the second trailer whereas in the first one there's maybe a few more seconds for a montage and i think just because you know as the viewer we're going to assume that the confrontation is the end of the movie and seeing like a whole bunch of stuff after that line just makes it feel more like we're probably seeing spoilers whereas in the second one where it's like gotcha you know bam title that's like okay cool there's there's still more to see that we haven't uh been exposed to in this trailer one thing about both trailers that i noticed was both trailers um really focused on the shot of Elizabeth Moss taking off her underwear. <laughs> and um, it's kind of it, it, like they, it has a moment in both trailers um, and it's an interesting choice. And I wonder if it is that, you know, she's very kind of vulnerable and it's something that really kind of, it, that really connects with people. But um, I really noticed it in, um, in both trailers. That's funny. I didn't notice. I don't remember the shot you're thinking of right now. I guess it's uh, like she's really vulnerable. She's she's getting undressed and going into the shower, and he's there as well. So, um, oh, okay. So it's that kind of it's a way of I guess signifying you know making that moment extra creepy. The other thing that the second trailer does is that they sort of talk about the husband less between the beginning of the trailer and the first sort of scenes where he's invisible, like there's that shower door scene where you see the handprint, and I think that. You know, a little bit more is left to the imagination than the second trailer, which is why I think it's more successful. It feels like it's it's spelling out everything a little bit less, and that's why I like the second trailer better. Really interesting things happening sonically in both trailers. Um, I thought uh, the first trailer's got a lot of kind of cool horror pulses and a real kind of actiony drummy ramp um, at the end. Is he listening? Where are you? Where are you? Show yourself! Come on! Do it! There you are. And the second trailer does a lot of, we've talked about it in the past with horror, but a lot of kind of really intense sound design and then cut to silence. Happens a few times. Um, And then there's one moment in the attic that we talked about where there's the sound of, I think, the phone vibrating, but it 
you can't hear it. It's because it's in the attic. It has this weird signature sound quality to it and where you think it might be part of the queue, um, but then it's kind of revealed to be the phone. There was some good ticking at the top of this as well. But um, the thing that I noticed most were those kind of moments of intense sound and then cut into silence. There's one where she's in the car and, uh, and yeah, a few more. Uh, yeah, so that's, those are the trailers for The Invisible Man. Check them out and, I don't know, t- uh, see what you think about both of them, which one works better for you. Uh, and I think the, the lesson that I take from this is something I need to remind myself of every now and then is that you know when making a trailer you know see how much stuff you can cut out of your own cut and see if it still works i've definitely had times where i realized oh wait yeah i didn't need all that stuff and sometimes i just cut things out because it doesn't seem like it's working and i don't know how to transition something so i say oh, i'll just cut it out uh and then it's better instantly <laughs> yeah also you've got to remember about trailer two is that it's kicking against trailer one you know trailer one would have been tested and you know those story elements would have gone in for a reason um but once that's kind of out there given that these are similar ultimately in their story arc it's an excuse doing a trailer two is an excuse to focus on different aspects and um play out those horror moments because you know you have a a a foundation in the story from the other trailer so Mm, yeah that's a very good point um but yes less is more uh ironically in a film about um someone who's invisible okay so let's start talking about some of our trailer tips or trailer hacks whatever you want to call them uh i wrote a whole bunch down they sort of fall into different categories of trailer editing um do you want me to start with one and then you can share one of yours sure yeah yeah yeah. after you okay so the first one i have is one i actually have a tutorial for on my youtube channel which is youtube.com slash derek lou and this is one about reverbing out audio which is something that in trailer editing and especially music editing for trailers is something that comes up a lot where you have a music cue that you just want to end at a certain moment, like on a certain beat, but if you just let the music play out, it'll just keep on going to the next section. Or maybe you have like a sound effect or a scream or something like that that you just want to kind of, you know, reverb out. So this is a really relatively simple thing where basically you take the part of the music and say you cut it off right at the end of the last beat and then you nest that chunk of the audio and then within the nested sequence you sort of extend it out by adding in like black or something like that so then that the nested clip can be longer sorry this is very nerdy um basically you're just trying to make the the part that's cut off longer so then that when you apply the reverb there is space for the reverb effect to actually happen and you know, back in the day when I was an assistant, people actually had to output, you know, this little bit of audio onto an audio tape and then re, re-import it back into the Avid and then apply reverb to that. But just nesting the audio and then extending it out that way uh, really uh, works. And it's good for a really quick reverb effect that later on maybe your sound mixer or something like that will make better. Um, if that was confusing, then check out my tutorial on YouTube.com slash Derek 
Um, that's funny. So that's Premiere specific, right? Yeah, that's Premiere. And I think you can do it in Final Cut Pro 10 and Final Cut Pro 7. But for Avid, because of the way Avid does nesting. And so I know it's done. You can't do it the same way in Avid. So how would you do that reverb effect? Yeah, it's funny. I was This was one of my top tips as well. Um, and clearly it's an important thing. And maybe you don't do it in other things. Maybe it's a very trader specific thing. Um, but yeah, I... I've mainly used Avid and I think when I started doing this, instead of outputting it to tape, I used to export a WAV of the section onto my desktop and bring it back in to give me the kind of frames for the reverb. Um, And then I did a period where I would audio mix down um, a section plus some tails for the reverb. And now I've, I've transitioned, I have changed to the point where now I have a track which is purely for reverbs and it has a track effect on it, um, which is anything that gets put on it uh, reverbs out. So it sits at the very bottom of my sequence. And so all I have to do now is grab that last beat or guitar stab or whatever, drag it down to the uh, the reverb track in it, and it reverbs out. And it's so useful. And I do the same for uh, dialogue as well. And then you don't bump into different things and you can have reverbs kind of stacked over reverbs. You know, something could be reverbing out and another one could happen. Um, so it's super useful. And I don't, I think it's probably been in the last couple of versions of Avid, but yeah, track, nested track effects is, is really useful for, for reverbs. Nice. That sounds very efficient. I bet you could probably do that in Premiere. I'll have to try that out after this. <laughs> yeah, there's so nested track effects. And that's actually really useful as well, not just for reverb. Um, sometimes I'll do it with uh, track EQ as well. Um, so if you want to have one track that's computer noise, or um, in theory, you could make all your dialogue tracks uh, louder using a kind of... Um, track effect as well and then you wouldn't have to change the volume of the individual clips you could do that actually audio eq for dialogue was my was one of my top tips um and it's something i learned really recently um because i never really messed around with the eq unless i was doing a kind of a telephone noise to dialogue or music trying to make it seem like it was in a room or something but there's something i've started doing recently which is adding top end within the specific frequencies of dialogue. It makes the higher frequencies of the dialogue poke through a bit more and it really cuts through the music uh, to the point where you can get away with dipping music a bit less underneath and it just makes everything sound much better and I'm so glad that I found it and wish I'd been doing it for 10 years previously. Yeah, that's a really good tip too. I've also not done much EQ stuff and probably only within the last year or two even started uh, looking up tutorials for that. But that's a really good one. So basically just because dialogue exists generally in like the mid to higher frequencies, if you just boost those, then uh, more likely to uh, hear it over the music. Yeah, I don't know exactly know the science behind it. So I'm just going to say it's magic. <laughs> and, and that's why. And this is, uh, this is bumping into something that um, traditionally has a, been a problem that you know, the audio effects of Avid and Premiere and Final Cut Pro have never really been quite as good as something like Logic or um, Pro Tools, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where you can bus cues to a certain place and, and you would have track effects and being able to kind of uh, live mix music where you're, you're moving the fader up and down and it remembers the keyframes. Um, but all of those things have, have slowly appeared um, in Avid and Final Cut and Premiere and uh, and. So now there's basically no excuse for <laughs> not doing not doing good audio. Yeah, nice. All right, uh, I'm going to talk about something still editing related, but uh, 
not quite as nitty-gritty technical. Um, I forget where I learned this tip from. This tip is about working on change notes that you receive from the client or producer or something like that. So, for example, you know, you just gave them a trailer and they have all these notes with time code on them from like, you know, 10 seconds in the trailer, 30 seconds, whatever. And the tip that I have is to work backwards through the notes rather than forwards because since you have all these nice time codes related to things specifically in the timeline, if you do changes to the beginning and make everything longer or shorter, all the time codes after that will now be incorrect. So if you work from the end back to the beginning, then all your time codes will be consistent through those change uh, notes. And you just, because you won't affect anything afterwards because you're starting at the end. Nice. Yeah. That's interesting. I think I've rarely encountered a client time code note that bears relation to anything. I say, <laughs> can you change that shot at 43 <laughs> seconds? And I'll be like, what, you mean 43 seconds from when the quick time started or on my <laughs> timeline? And there's no kind of visible time code for them to see. So I just end up having to guess and frequently get it wrong. <laughs> um, but I wish <laughs> I wish it worked um, clearly how it does it does for you because that makes a lot of sense that's funny it's interesting actually um just the concept of having to do client changes at all um it's always a a kind of nerve-wracking thing i always say that my favorite part of any process that we do is once you've got the v1 out and you're in the limbo Mm -hmm. you don't know it's it's schrodinger's trailer you don't know whether (laughs) it's gone well or badly right but you 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 know there's you've done everything you can basically and um you know the minute the notes come back it's either going to be good or it's either going to be bad but and somehow it's going to change anyway so um just enjoy that moment while you can and then i kind of take a look through any notes through kind of through my fingers (laughs) um and frequently it's not as bad as uh as as bad as i imagine anyway so um the one thing i'll say about change notes that seems to be consistently accurate is that a long list of change notes is always better than a short one because usually when i see a short list it means there's something like incredibly fundamentally wrong like change the music whereas if they're getting down to like really really small things and it's a really big list then it's usually pretty easy to go through which have still been pretty much the case for everything I've ever done. <laughs> yeah, sometimes there's nothing There's nothing better than just a, a very long list of very specific small changes that you can do, and none of them are too too taxing, and you, you can just kind of bash through them and tick them off. There's nothing better than kind of ticking them off as you go. Um, that can be that can be really satisfying unless you do that and you get lulled into a false sense of security and then you get to the end and you've done it yeah and then you get the uh, and also change the music can we try an alt where you change you can change the music but actually if you do your backwards tip then uh, then you wouldn't encounter that so um yeah maybe so there you go all right any other ones for you yeah just a few kind of in the weeds again of um sound design while we're while we're at it um there's uh something i think we talked about it in our sound design episode but um it's definitely one of the things that i've learned along the way that i wish i'd known sooner um and that's pairing high-end and low-end sound design Mm. Uh, to kind of pair a top metallic, crunchy, slap, high drum, snare hit uh, with a sub hit and it's just kind of more satisfying and obviously gets around the speakers in the theatre and makes a more rounded cinematic sound. Uh, So that's something that that I really enjoy and and wish I'd known sooner. Uh, And then my last one on sound is something that I'd heard 
And I think this is um, there's an editor, um, editor producer at Ignition called Robin Burke. Um, and someone told me years ago that just before his dialogue started, he did a little reverse into the dialogue. So it's like taking the first sound of the dialogue and reversing that and playing it before. So it kind of sucks into the the dialogue. Oh, interesting. Um, and Robin was actually, he was a radio producer. And I wonder if that's a technique that he... Uh, he took from there, but I've tried it a few times, and it's really good for kind of announcing that it's going to happen, or or gives us sometimes gives a kind of ghostly quality, or it just makes makes stuff kind of really punch through. Um, and I took that philosophy actually to um, we've talked in the past about suckbacks being kind of reversed hits, um, but I heard that for dialogue, and I thought I wonder if the same thing happens with music cues. Mm. Um, and I tried it once, and I had a, a music cue that started with a big kind of guitar stab. Um, and I took that guitar stab and I reversed it so it kind of, you know, it was the same note kind of leading into the cue and it really worked. <laughs> um, so that's something that's, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily work with hits because if you reverse a hit and play it into the same hit, it's going to lose some of its impact. But um, it really worked with music. So that's definitely something that that you can experiment with. Hmm, that's interesting. I've never heard that before. But don't know if it's a top tip, but it's something to uh, something to try out. Yeah, I'd, I'd say these all fall into like the hack category or just things that, I mean, I'd, I've never heard anything like that before, but I definitely want to try it out now. Um, cool. Uh, so uh, what's next on your list? So the next one I have, I only figured out probably within the last year or two, and this is a trick for checking eye trace between two shots. So if you don't know what eye trace is, basically it's just sort of being aware of where the audience's eyes are focused in one shot in, and also from one shot to the other one. So for example, if there's a red ball on the screen and at the end of one shot, it's on the left side of the screen. And then the next shot, if you want to have good eye trace, then the focus of that shot will still be on the left side of the screen. But if it was on you know, the right side, you'd have to force the audience's eyes to like move over to the right. Uh, and this is the thing that like Michael Bay has a problem with in a lot of his action uh, scenes where just the eye trace is all over the place, which is why you're so disoriented. And like the classic ex- example that's like the opposite of that is Mad Max Fury Road, where everything is in the center. Um, but so what I used to do was take the f- the second shot, make it like half opacity, put it on the second track above the other previous shot, you know, check it and then move things around, then put the shot back. But I figured out if way quicker way, which is to just add uh, a crossfade transition between the two shots, because once you do that, you're looking at both shots at the same time. So then you can just select one of the shots like in Premiere and then change the like transform uh, if necessary, or just see that it's completely off and you need to find a new shot. And then once you've lined it all up, you just take the transition off and you're good. So that's that's one of my favorite ones that I've figured out just really within the last two years. Oh, that makes sense because when you first said that, I was like, oh, yeah, I would probably put the shot a layer above and extend it. Uh, that's probably the only the only good use of a crossfade transition when it comes to traders. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, I'm not a fan of um, crossfade transitions. Um, and to that point, actually, a, a top tip that I have about um, crossfades, and it has to do with eye trace as well, um, is... I'm not again not a fan of crossfade transitions, um, especially when you have things that occupy the same space that you're transitioning between. So, so the argument would be if you've got something in the center and another shot, then at some point there's going to be a couple of frames where it basically just looks ugly. 
Um, and a lot of what I do uh, in things when I'm doing crossfades and I want to show different stuff, but in a less cutty way and, and more kind of smooth and, and you know, the, the circumstance where you would use a crossfade transition is to have things on the left and then things on the right. So the, the content on the right, say a person, appears out of the negative space of the shot where key thing in the foreground was on the left. Mm. Uh, so basically you go from thing to focus on on the left, crossfade to thing to focus on the right, to crossfade to thing to focus on the left. And it might mean flopping some shots and resizing and moving them around, um, but that is really satisfying. And uh, also something I've, I've played with in the past as well is if you have something on the left of the screen, the thing on the right fades up, but... Oh, God, this is really, this is really in the weeds. But... Um, but um, go and listen to our um, go and listen to our podcast about um, sound design or something if you want to meet us. That left and right thing you mentioned that reminds me of the opening to the anime Neon Genesis Evangelion, which had it's pretty it's cut pretty fast and especially towards the end there's a big uh, there's a big montage of characters and they do do a lot of like left and right switching, uh, which just looks aesthetically pleasing and I think just because it's it like quickly becomes a repeatable pattern, then uh, it just lets people sort of expect what's coming like really, really fast. And it's it's aesthetically pleasing, but not confusing. Just also because each frame is pretty simplified, like a person on a very blank background, as opposed to like, you know, giant transformer that's really pointy and there's explosions behind the transformer and then there's explosions behind the explosions or something like that. Yeah, one trailer that does it really well, I think, is Jen Horvath's trailer for Sucker Punch. Mm. There are some kind of some crossfades in the middle there where it's kind of matching movement. And kind of to your point about eye tracing, there's a continuity of movement um, and it works really well. So um, check that out for some, for some good crossfades. Those are my best tips. One, I just I have some more that I think if you aren't doing this already, then you should. Uh, one thing is just about sort of version control which is basically one thing I do all the time is if I'm working on a cut and I'm about to try like a totally new idea that I think would take the trailer in a fundamentally different direction, I just duplicate the sequence and then start a new one. And that's just a way of creating a history of the the cut because, you know, even if there is like a history panel like in Premiere, uh, once you create the program, then it's gone. So it's just a way to like build up the the history of your cut, which is also just fun to look at once you're you're done uh, and see how you got there. Yeah, to that point, sometimes I'll uh, duplicate a sequence into another bin as well, just in case I worry that that bin will go corrupt or, you know, it's two two versions are being saved. So I'll, I'll, you know, every five to 10 versions, I'll put something down in my catch-all effect bin just so I've got a record of it. You can tell I'm paranoid. <laughs> um, oh, another quick one, which I'm only going to mention this one because I've just met editors who don't do this and I just think, wow, this makes your life so much easier, which is just have a template project file for your projects, like your trailers or whatever you're working on. Uh, I have a template which just has all the bins that eventually through you know, numerous projects, I just found myself in situations where 
I had a file I didn't know what bin to put into, so I just created some new bin structures so then that everything can go into its own bin and be organized in some way. There's not just like one massive bin where all the files are there, which whenever I've seen that from inherited projects or whatever, I'm just thinking, oh my God, I I can't, I I can't, (laughs) so... No, I need to tidy this before I absolutely before I do. Yeah, that's a, that's a good thing. At least, kind of, if you start that way, then um, then you're onto, you know, you're at least starting with the best intentions. It's something we kind of touched on last week when we were talking about TV spots, but it's definitely one of my top tips that I learned early and and held on to. Um, and it's about not having wasted space in a cut. Um, I've said it before, but you know, at any point in any cut, especially when it comes to TV or shorter things. Um, you're hearing a sound effect or a line of dialogue or a, a voiceover or a lyric is poking through and to just make sure that something sonically interesting or storytelling-wise is happening at, at any one point. Um, and I remember cutting TV spots for uh, the film Knocked Up. A lot of the TV spots that I cut started with, I'm pregnant with a baby, um, which is a joke, you know, in the first two seconds, but also all the story and you know, it's that kind of clarity of information. Um, that's a slightly different point from packing them sound design wise, but it also speaks to TV spots and clarity of information and getting stuff through as quickly as you um, as you possibly can. Uh, which is a top tip for TV: don't don't waste any space. Um, another one we've talked about before is watching films mute uh, to do your shot breakdowns to kind of see the shots and the reverses that you may not see because there's dialogue happening under them is a really great um, thing that has changed the way that I break down um, shots. Um, Marking music cues with... I have a kind of traffic light system. Once it's all kind of catch-all within the project, I'll mark stuff red that I'm not going to use. Orange, which is a cue that I might consider, but I'm not in love with it. And green that I like definitely think this could work. Um, uh, and that might speak to the fact that I gather too much music, um, but it can be really useful when you come to, when you get that client email with the changes where you have to change the music and you're like, yes, I have all of these cues ready to go and I've listened to them and tried them out. And um, here are my green traffic light selects. And uh, and the final one is a kind of um, the final tip that I had is a more creative one. And I think we talked about this in our episode about filling a timeline. But it's something that I learned from an editor that I used to work with. And it's when facing that blank timeline, set yourself some restrictions and just get something down, be it, you know, try and try and tell the story visually, just do shots that are 10 frames. Um, ignore one character, set these kind of arbitrary rules to see if it kickstarts a creative process and then, you know, allow yourself to subvert the rules but only once, you know, try all these kind of things to to get started. And that's and that um, lateral thinking way of um, solving creative problems uh, is really helpful as a mindset to, uh, to kind of get started and do what we do. Well, while you're talking, I thought of a couple more that I wrote down. Um, one is specific to making game trailers, and this one I learned from a place that I worked at in LA, and that is for every single time you have a new build of the game, make a new bin to hold the capture from that new build and, and number them. So like, not necessarily with the build number, but like, you know, the first time you capture something from the game, you know, 001. Then you get a new build later on, then that becomes 002. So then that you know that if there's something that was fundamentally changed in the build, like, I don't know, some post-processing effect in the latest one, you know that 
which shots will be missing that that you might need to recapture. Um, so that's one very specific for games. And uh, when you're talking about markers, I have this one, which I also made another tutorial for, which is the way that I mark up my music for when I'm ready to start editing with it. So I have this system for marking the sort of things that happen within a music queue that help me edit with them. So for example, a new part of the music queue starts that's sort of different from the section that before that, I'll put like a red marker. But then if something gets repeated, which happens frequently in trailer music, because they'll like sort of loop an idea over and over, at the beginning of each loop, then I'll put like a green marker. Um, and then I have one where if you can hear the music is sort of ramping up to something, like maybe there's some like drums that are building up to a big hit, then at the beginning of that, I'll put a yellow marker. And then when the big hit comes, then that's a purple marker. And then sometimes there are cues which just have like a, a little fill where it's like doom doom that sort of you can just take out and just use to transition to things. Um, it's just this really small, like self-contained beat. I'll put um, a cyan marker. These are all premier colors. Um, and then when I'm done doing that, then I can sort of look at the cue that I want to use. And then if I'm editing and thinking to myself, okay, this is a new section of the trailer. I need something new. I'll just instantly go for those red markers because I know that's going to be something different than what I had before. Um, and that has really, really helped uh, my music editing uh, a whole lot. And I think people should do something like that. Yeah, that's interesting. I uh, When I... I worked with an editor years ago who did the red marker for um, the big thing, but he also did uh, a yellow marker also for the kind of drum fill that happens before that. So maybe that's a kind of industry-wide thing. Um, to that point, actually, while we're talking about um, markers in music, markers in sound effects are super useful as well. Mm, yes. Um, so if, like, uh, if you've got a whoosh or a rise or something like that, mark where the hit is and you will always know you can quickly get to that make that your in point put it in on the beat and then drag the tail back if you need to but um that's super useful yeah so like if it something goes like then you can put the marker on the part or for the rise i'll put the the marker at the very end of the rise uh so then that i can like backwards sync it uh that's it that's another good tip and so one more that i have which is specific to premiere just because of something that you can do in it which this is just to get rid of the little tiny little audio pops at the beginning or end of either music or dialogue, um, which is not only to just add like a two frame transition to the beginning and end, but what you can do in Premiere specifically is you take the two frame transition, you copy it, and then you hold down command uh, on Mac and I think Alt on PC and just drag your mouse cursor across all the cuts that you want to paste it onto and it'll select them all, and they just hit paste, and suddenly all your audio pops are gone. Which everyone who like edits stuff for YouTube, where they jump cut their way through their narration, uh, should know that one to get rid of audio pops. Uh, yeah, there's a similar thing in Avid where you can select the track and uh, bring up your transition window and apply to all transitions. Uh, and you can exclude transitions that already exist, but that's a really easy way if you're in a rush to smooth out all your dialogue in a row. You can put, you know, hundreds of transitions on at the same time. Um, so any last tips for you? Yeah, there was one that I wasn't going to mention because it was too in the weeds, but I think we're already past the point of no return. Um, and this is Avid specific, but it's not going to make 
sense to many people, but I use it, you know, hundreds of times a day. Um, and it's putting a transition on in Avid. You hit your transition, you hit your transition button, you type the duration of the entire transition that you want, you press tab, you, t- you type the number of frames before the cut that you want, and then you press enter. So that's a kind of a very, very quick, although not quick to explain, way to do a transition um, that just really works for me. And, you know, you learn your thing. So if you want, if I want a perfectly centered transition, then I'll do like transition 50, 25, enter. Um, and that's a 50 frame transition happening 25 frames before the cut. Or, you know, sometimes I'll do like 30, 10. So you get a kind of offside transition where it's 30 frames long, but it's only happening 10 frames before the transition. And um, it's, uh, yeah, as I say, it's very in the weeds, but I do it all the time. And I'm sure there's a quicker way. Uh, uh, but um, that really works for me and I, I wouldn't be able to survive without it. You had to end on the one tip that I'm most jealous of from for Avid users versus Premiere because there's no transition button in Premiere. No! And whenever I want to adjust durations, I have to double-click the transition every single time and it just destroys me. I just, I, I want a transition button so bad. It would make it so much faster. There isn't one. I remember in Final Cut, I think I always used to... Um, right click or control click on the on the transition and add it there from the from the menu is that not the same in premiere is that how you have to do it it's even worse than premiere than final cut 7 because if you have like a stereo pair of audio in premiere and two transitions appear you have to double click both of them or like shift click them otherwise it'll just do one of them whereas final cut 7 could uh like select a stereo pair audio and i'm like ugh, (laughs) i i like the top of my premiere feature request is something similar to the avid transition button and it kills me well maybe they'll do that maybe they'll do that like base technology um that's existed for 20 years maybe they'll bring that into the next uh the next version in premiere who knows yeah if if you're a trailer editor who works on premiere uh Maybe I'll put a link to my my features request on the Adobe site, and everyone, please upvote it because that's the way it works uh, for Adobe's feature request uh, submission form now. That's funny. <laughs> well, good luck. So yeah, so that is our very in the weeds uh, trailer tips that we've picked up along the way. Uh, feel free to email us any. Uh, of your favorite tips and we can uh, we can throw them in at the end of an episode and uh, it'd be great to have a kind of top tip every week from uh, from a listener yeah that would be amazing all right so that's our show uh, as always you can contact us at cutdown at idlethumbs.net if you have questions or comments about the show uh, we're also on twitter at cutdowncast and i'm at derek underscore lou and i'm at rick thomas and also i realized i forgot to mention we're also on instagram at cutdowncast we're part of the Idle Thumbs Network, and you can join us on the Idle Thumbs forums if you'd like to talk about this week's episode. And if you can, leave us a review on iTunes and let us know what you think of the show and, you know, give us a little shout out there. Uh, we'll really appreciate it. And, of course, tell your friends if they're not already listening to the show and they'll be interested. And as always, we want to give a thank you to our friends at Twisted Jukebox for our intro music. Yeah, and check out our other 21 episodes that are slightly less geeky <laughs> and in the weeds this and talk about other trailers. But um, it is this is a trailer editing podcast and uh, we definitely covered some uh, trailer editing ground today. So uh, thanks for listening. Yep, thanks. Bye-bye.